0: Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 73, middle of the page. We're continuing Song of the Day. Every single day, there's a new song um, that correlates to the theme of that day of creation and represents some sort of meditation or message for that day. So Song of the Day for the fourth day, which happens to be Wednesday, is a direct excerpt from Tehillim, from Psalm 30, what is it, that's uh, my 30, 90, was it 94, 94, 96, 94, okay, it, it's a bit of a, yeah, there we go, it's a bit of a long chapter, it's a very important chapter, and to be honest, it's a very difficult chapter to read, but we're going to unmask its meaning and its relevance. Let's read through the chapter quickly, relatively quickly, so we get the gist of what's going on here. Um, page 73, you see it? Okay, the Lord is a God of retribution. O God of retribution, reveal yourself. <laughs> that's kind of an interesting prayer, isn't it? <laughs> you, you'll soon see what that means or why that's important. Judge of the earth arise, render to the arrogant their recompense. what is recompense? Okay, excuse me, English. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? They continuously speak incidentally. all the evildoers act arrogantly. They crush your people, O Lord, and oppress your heritage. They kill the widow and the stranger and the murder of orphan and the mur- and murder the orphans. And they say the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive, understand you senseless among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Shall he who implants the ear not hear? Shall he who informs the eye not see? Shall he who chastises nations not punish? Shall he who imparts knowledge to man not know? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, and they are not, that they are not. So we're saying over here that God is a God of vengeance. God is a judgeful God. God is a God of justice. And although the wicked do seem to see, uh, get away with murder, in the literal of senses, God is very much aware. and we're, And God is very much at some point going to bring that justice. And we're calling God to the stand. God, start acting. Fortunate is the man whom you chastise, O Lord, and instruct him in your Torah, bestowing upon him tranquility in times of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people nor forsake his heritage. For judgment shall again be consonant with justice, and all the upright in the heart, and heart will pursue it. Who would uprise for me against the wicked ones? Who would stand up for me against the evildoers? Had the Lord not been a help to me, my soul would have soon dwelt in the silence of the grave. When I thought that my foot was slipping, your kindness, O Lord, supported me. When my worrisome thoughts multiply within me, your consolation delights my soul. Can one in the seat of evil, one who makes iniquity into law, consort with you? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. The Lord has been my stronghold, my God, the strength of my refuge. He will turn their violence against them and destroy them through their own wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Bit of a shift in gears here. Let us raise our voices in jubilation to the rock of our deliverance. Let us approach him. With thanksgiving, let us raise our voices to Him in song, for the Lord is great. Is it for the Lord is a great God and a great King over all supernal beings. So this is a, addressing an age-old philosophical question, or perhaps an emotional question: Why are the wicked seeming to prosper, and why do the righteous seem to suffer? And our answer is that we are praying that God will bring his retribution, will bring justice one day. This is specifically, um, the the Talmud says this is specifically associated with Wednesday, the fourth day of creation. Because what was created on day four of existence? Anyone remember? The sun and uh, and the moon and the stars and constellations. Those are platforms of idolatry. The the truth is idolatry comes in all forms, all shapes and all sizes. (laughs) But idolatry started with the sun and the moon and the stars. That's actually how it all started. Maimonides writes, where he discusses the the laws and ethics, if you will, of idolatry. He talks about the history and evolution of, of idolatry. And Idolaters were pagans, were at one point believers. This is what Maimonides says. It was Adam's grandchildren. Adam himself was created by God and spoke to God. His grandchildren believed in God, but believed that God delegated power. So why make connections with the manager if you can make connections with the employee, with the one you have to actually deal with, right? So God delegates power to the sun, to the moon, to the stars, to the constellations. Let's lend them our appreciation the next generation just saw their parents serving the star and the moon and the sun and just did that idly and it went downhill from there but idolatry started from the sun and the moon that's where it all started and what we're saying is although there is and by the way idolatry is essentially the, the source of all sin of all evil, of all negativity All it's actually this week's Torah portion this week's tour portion is the Ten Commandments given at Sinai. And actually, it's a debate. According to Mel Brooks, it was the Fifteen Commandments. <laughs> God is giving the Ten Commandments at Sinai, and he only uttered the first two. Couldn't get past the first two. Why, what happened after, after that? Why couldn't he finish the first eight, the, the last eight? We couldn't handle it, right? It was We were expiring. The, the experience of hearing God was just too much to handle. So we said to Moshe, Moshe, we can't do this anymore. Why don't you hear it from God and you'll convey the message to us? So on a very simple level, on a historical level, God only recited the first two because we couldn't handle the rest. But in Tanya, chapter, I think it's 23 of Tanya, which is in the recent Tanya cycle, It says that the reason why it was those two, it wasn't just a historical or logistical, technical reason, but the first two commandments are actually fundamental. The first commandment is believe in God. And that is the source for all positive mitzvahs, for all do's. Any mitzvah we're going to do boils down to, do you believe in God? Then you'll be motivated to do it. If you don't believe in God, you won't be motivated to do it. I mean, if we're we're looking at life in a very black and white, linear way. Any sin boils down to idolatry. Do I believe that there could be something else other than God? Can I have my own agenda? Can I serve my own reality? If that's the case, that's essentially what idolatry is. If you strip down the, the essence of idolatry, belief in something else. That has power. Which means I could do what I want. Or I could do what someone else wants. So idolatry. Or sin. Boils down to idolatry. Is rooted in idolatry. That's why the Talmud says. Anybody who's arrogant. Or anybody who gets angry. It's as if they had committed idolatry. Because they've created. Some sort of alternate reality. Other than God. It might not be literal idolatry, but at least philosophically or conceptually, spiritually, it is idolatry. There's plenty of idolaters. There's plenty of sinners. There's plenty of evil people in this world, unfortunately. And we're saying, God, you're a God of retribution. And at some point, you're going to reveal yourself. At some point, there's going to be justice. At some point, there's going to be clarity. It's a bit, I know it's a bit of a dark chapter, but I'd like to share with you um something fascinating. The way the Talmud discusses the wicked people being punished in the free in the future era, in the future to come. Because it, you know, kind of makes us wonder why are why are they not being punished right now? Why are why are they getting away with this? Why is Hamas getting away with this? Why does anybody who's evil get away with what they're doing? And how does God punish evil people? So the Talmud says, this is in tractate of Odhazara, The Talmud says, oh, oh, did I say something offensive? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, see, okay? We lost him. Okay. The Talmud says that in their future era, when Mashiach comes, There isn't going to be punishment through purgatory, through hell, through fire. God is going to remove the um, casing around the sun, which I guess means the, the ozone layer. And those who are wicked are going to be singed by it. Those who are righteous are going to be healed by it. That's what the Talmud says which euphemistically means god is going to reveal himself and how does that feel how does feel how does seeing truth feel well if i've been living life consistently with that truth it feels great if my life has been inconsistent with that truth it could be rather uncomfortable to say the least Um, and, and that's why we use the analogy of the sun. The commentaries on the Talmud explain. The sun doesn't change. That same sun can hurt the wicked and heal the righteous. The same sun can melt wax yet harden salt. Right? If it's baking in the sun. So the sun's not changing. It's us that needs to change. As as you know, the the, the truth doesn't change. We need to change and accommodate the truth. The truth isn't going to accommodate us. And if we're behaving in a way that is consistent with truth, that is consistent with reality, with, that is consistent with God and his values, that's going to heal us. And those who are acting wickedly, it, it's going to it could be very, very uncomfortable. Imagine... I mean, imagine two people are at work, working at a bank, both young employees, and one of them is a very upright, honest person with integrity, and one of them tries to get away with whatever he can. Nobody's looking. He'll clock out a little. He'll uh, leave a little early. Or clock out a little. Whatever it is. You know, swipe some money. Whatever it is. He's he's being a little bit dishonest. At the end of their month, first month at the office, they both notice that there are security cameras and their boss has been watching them the whole time. They didn't know that before, but now they know that. The one with integrity... It's going to feel gratified. It's going to feel great. The one with the one who lacks integrity and was being dishonest, he's going to feel incredibly uncomfortable. Because the moment he's exposed truth to the reality that this is incorrect, that there's a real right and wrong, that itself can be very uncomfortable. That can, that, that's very painful. But for those who know the truth, that's very healing. It's the same sun, but different items. It can melt it. It can solidify it. Experiencing God, right? We say this is a God of retribution. A God of retribution, reveal yourself. The moment God reveals himself, how does that feel? If we're ready for it, if we're living consistently with God's values, it feels great. If not, it could be quite uncomfortable. This is an incredible paradigm shift because what we're saying is God isn't punishing as much as it is. We are calling him a God of retribution, but that's a—it's na- more of a natural consequence. God reveals Himself, and if I'm em- embarrassed, well, God didn't embarrass me. I'm embarrassed me. <laughs> I wasn't behaving properly. In the Avat Olam prayer, right before the Shema, we sing Velo Nevosh. Velo Let us not be ashamed. Let us not be embarrassed. And one way to interpret this is let us have the confidence to do our service and not be embarrassed in front of other people, which is an important prayer. But another way to look at it, God, let us not be embarrassed in front of you. Because one day we're going to meet you. One day you are going to be revealed. One day we're going to experience you. And we don't want to be ashamed of our behavior. We want to be proud. And what we're saying in this prayer is the God who forms the eye, doesn't he see? (laughs) If he created the ability to see, of course he sees. Of course he knows what's going on. If he created knowledge, of course he knows. If he created the ability to hear, of course he hears. God gets it. And the moment we're aware that God gets it, Is the moment that we're or that the righteous are going to be very proud, and the wicked are going to be very uncomfortable. The Talmud says that the sage Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was on his deathbed, and his students said, "Rabbi, can you offer us a parting blessing?" He says, "My blessing to you." is that your reverence for God should be like your reverence for people. I'm like Rabbi what that doesn't seem right. Shouldn't we revere God more than we revere people? like what what do you mean? He says your reverence if your reverence for God is like your reverence for people that's pretty good <laughs> because nobody wants to sin. nobody wants to do something wrong nobody's nobody's sane wants to do something that they know is wrong in front of people. We like to hide our faults. We like to hide our misdoings, our wrongdoings, which is normal, by the way. We, we, you don't have to be vulnerable about everything <laughs> um, to everybody, right? It's, it's okay to have privacy. We like privacy. We don't want to advertise and wear in our forehead everything we're doing wrong. We like a little bit of shame. It's healthy to have a little bit of shame. But if we can have that shame in front of God, who's always present, that's an indication that our faith is really strong. Let me let me let me phrase it this way. During Gullus, during exile. We're in a position where we have to believe this because we have no other choice. We don't experience it. At least I don't. Um, we we believe. We believe that God will reveal himself one day. We believe that there will be clarity one day. We believe that there is a right and wrong. There was a time in history where this was intuitive. When God gave the Torah at Sinai, this was intuitive. When God allowed us to experience his presence in the Beit Hamikdash, this was intuitive. And now, It's not very intuitive, it's not very obvious, but when Mashiach comes, in the Messianic era, as Isaiah describes, the whole world will be full of the knowledge of God, just as the water covers the sea, we're going to be totally absorbed in this truth, we're going to have this clarity, and we're going to be be able to feel incredibly proud. We're going to be able to feel great. So meditation number one. If God were to reveal his presence right now, if Mashiach were to come, and I were to experience God right at this moment, God were to catch me, Would it be catching me doing something I'm proud of? Or catch me doing something I'm less than proud of? Right? The sun comes out, like the Talmud says. Is the sun going to heal me with vitamin D? Or is it going to hurt me? Expose me too much? It's the same sun. But to one person it's vitamin D. To another person it's a sunburn. Depending on how we position ourselves. It's the same God and am i going to be proud or am i going to say i could have done better um th- th- this is an answer that is going to vary from moment to moment and from person to person and from era to era right our, our lives are constantly evolving as as they say we're human we're not human beings we're human becomings our co- our lives are are constantly evolving but it's but it's an important meditation it's an important thing to ask And this is something we ask ourselves with this prayer on the fourth day of creation. Where the potential for idolatry, the venue, if you will, for idolatry had been uh, created. Next, in this prayer, we say, hold on, let's find it. Um, It's the middle of the prayer in English, it says, Fortunate is the man who you chastise. Do you see that? Okay, this is a, it, the, the line starts with not, and then the second word is, Fortunate is the man whom you chastise, O Lord, and instruct him in your Torah, bestowing upon him tranquility in times of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. Fortunate is the man whom you chastise. It doesn't seem fair. You get in trouble for being good. Doesn't seem right. God is ignoring the wicked, waiting till the future to come, come to deal with them, waiting, waiting for a later time to deal with them. And when it comes to the righteous, you know, they said no good deed goes unpunished. I'm trying to be good. And God finds hey eh, he did this. He did that. God finds ways to, to chastise us. And it doesn't always seem fair. But I think it's very important that we contextualize this for a moment. It's important that we contextualize this. If God is willing to chastise you, that what does that mean? What does that show? Yeah, Mike. Well, I think uh, it means God's willing to invest his time in something in, in someone he sees absolute potential for right? right so you know the the closer you are to him the closer he wants you to get to him right so he's investing more time by chastising and and helping you fine-tune these little things to help you bring you that much closer to it exactly in other words chast you only chastise those whom you're close to you chastise your own children you don't usually chastise random children off the street. You don't care, right? Then do what you want. <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me. I don't know, you know. <laughs> it's a, make it the parent's problem, not my problem. Um, but chastising means that we're valuable enough that God cares, that God believes in us. Um, we're, we're never asking to be chastised, God forbid. And we're not asking to be tested. But if we do feel that, God, why are you doing this to me? There is an indication that you're worth it or valuable to God. Rabbi Manus Friedman tells a story of a young seven-year-old in Israel. She was convinced that God was angry at her. And the parents were really concerned. Like, that's a pretty dark thought for a seven-year-old. Or maybe she was nine, whatever it is. That's a pretty dark thought for a young kid. The parents took her to various rabbis who tried convincing her that God loves you no matter what, various biblical sources that you're a child to God and every God, you know, God loves children and especially your child, you're innocent. It just wasn't working. The parents took her to therapists, it wasn't working. They heard of Rabbi Friedman and they said, we'll give it a try. They call Rabbi Friedman up. Our child is convinced that God is angry at her. Can you talk her out of it? No other rabbi or therapist could, but maybe you can do something. He says, sure, can you put her on the phone, please? He goes, hey, so what's going on? She says, God is angry at me. He says, God is angry at you? She says, yeah. He says, that's that's incredible. Why? You're seven years old. You're a seven-year-old. And you are important enough to anger God? I mean, how many of us get angered by a random seven-year-old? We don't. We have lives. We're busy. We move on. And God is angry at you. That's incredible. What a shift, man. What a perceptual shift if you can anger God and if you could be angry at God, both of those, both of those are incredible relationships. I think Ellie Wiesel said that the opposite of love is not hate but indifference. being indifferent is not a good thing. But having some sort of emotional connection, even if it's a negative emotional connection, that's that's. That is a relationship. Fortunate is the man whom you chastise. That's what we say. We're lucky. We're fortunate. We're thankful. Let let me put it this way. The, the, The Rebbe actually spoke about this in one of his talks where he spoke about how, you know, we, we know the value. We learn a lot about the value of a mitzvah. How a mitzvah means a commandment, a mitzvah also means a connection. And when you do a mitzvah, you channel God's infinite energy into this physical world. Hasidic teaching elaborates about this extensively and what a mitzvah accomplishes. Um, One example, one of my favorite analogies, this is from Tanya, where you have the sun... And you have the shadow of a sun or, or, or uh, um, like a shadow, like a sundial, right? So in order for that shadow to move a couple of inches, how much does the sun need to move? Right, like hundreds of miles, thousands of miles? It's got to move a lot. Um, it, One, what seems like a, you know, you just pop the coin in a charity box. What doesn't seem like a big deal in our paradigm, is actually a much bigger deal than it actually is. A mitzvah is a big deal. because it's, And it's ultimately why we were created, to make this world a divine place through mitzvahs. But in one of his talks, the rabbi took it to a all-new level. He says the value that a Jew has is not only through doing the mitzvah, but through being commanded to do the mitzvah. Your self-worth is not just what you are do what you need to do or sorry is, is not just let me rephrase your self your self-worth it doesn't just result from living up to your expectations but just from having those expectations the fact that you are commanded to do that mitzvah gives you an incredible self-worth and if you neglect that mitzvah that's incredible because nobody else could have <laughs> It's somebody who wasn't, a, a non-Jewish person can't say, I'm going to eat treif, and I'm going to eat on Yom Kippur and I'm going to not put on that tefillin. And I'll be like, okay, <laughs> great. Um, you have other responsibilities. Keep the seven ohi laws. It's, I mean, they, they have their responsibilities. Everybody has their responsibilities. But as a Jew, just being commanded to do that mitzvah and being able to Frustrate God by not doing that mitzvah is an incredible relationship. I mean, I, I look. I think as parents, every one of us on this call live here are parents, and for those listening to the recording who are parents, if if you get frustrated by your children sometimes. I don't I'm not necessarily saying we need to express that frustration and not control it but that's not a bad thing. I mean the worst thing is the indifference. You know at some point if a child is so challenging or difficult and we just say whatever just do what you want. what child wants to hear that. Just do what you want, you know, whatever. I don't care. Stop pick fetching and just do what you want. That that can be very hurtful to a child. it's not angering you? What's going on here? I'm supposed to elicit some sort of emotion, some sort of attention. And if not positive, at least negative. But no attention, indifference? That's horrible. We want love from God. But if God is chastising us, God forbid. Um... There's a relationship there. There's a relationship there. There really is. When are we going to experience this relationship? Because right now we're believing in this relationship. We're discussing the relationship. We believe in the relationship. We have to remind ourselves of the relationship. We have to learn about the relationship. But it's not readily... uh, It's not like we're so... By default, naturally aware. Our neshama is aware, our soul is aware. But are we aware? We have to learn about it and discuss it like we're doing now. But at some point in his, at some point in time, there's going to be a natural awareness. You know when that is? When Mashiach comes. And that's why this chapter, this prayer, concludes with discussing this time in the Messianic era when we're going to sing to God. The Messianic era is euphemistically referred to as Shabbos. It's one big Shabbos. We're totally absorbed in the holiness of God. And what do we do on Shabbos? The first opening prayer of Kabbalat Shabbat. We say, take a look at the last line in the Hebrew. Page 73. Last line, right after the two dots. Second word. Lechu come let us sing to God that's what we say on Shabbos and the ultimate Shabbos the messianic era we're not going to have to be worried about is God being just and why is God calling me out and not calling them out why is God showing me his love in that way <laughs> and why is he showing them justice in that way <laughs> We're just going to sing to God. Come, let us sing to God on Shabbos. As if it were Shabbos. The truth is we say this on a Wednesday. Three days before Shabbos. Wednesdays when we start preparing for Shabbos. We start, we're halfway through the week. We're more than halfway through exile. And we could start now singing as if it were the messianic era living as if we were in that space rejoicing as if we were there already that's what we got to do we got to rejoice we got we got to rejoice we got to sing we got to dance if Mashiach was here tomorrow and i knew that i would dance now right that's what we're doing i know this can happen any moment So we conclude this whole gruesome negative, I mean, seemingly negative prayer, talking about how God is going to reveal himself, and that could be uncomfortable. And the chastising could be uncomfortable, but it still represents a relationship. At some point, it is going to be incredibly positive. And we're going to sing, and we're going to dance, and we're starting to do that now. Come, let us sing to God. Okay, that's it. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it.